interventions, behaviors, and supports. I don't mean in general. In general, those all sound fine and dandy. But when they come within 100 yards of a school, they turn into PBIS. And that's another ball of wax entirely. Today, I'm joined on the show by author Thomas Nestrick, and we're going to talk about his book, Controlling Our Children, Hegemony, and Deconstructing the Positive Behavior Intervention Support Model. If that sounds like a hot and flossy title, then listeners, you are in for a treat. And even if it doesn't, you're in for a treat anyway, especially if you, like me and Dr. Nestrick, are deeply suspicious of the PBIS model. Spoiler, we're deeply suspicious of the PBIS model. That said, we do try to be fair in examining what PBIS can and can't do for Vermont students. Okay, we're mostly fair. But I'm still Jeannie Phillips, and this is still Vermont Ed Reads, books by, for, and with Vermont educators. Let's chat. Thanks so much for joining me, Thomas. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. So I am a professor of education at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, I've been here for 15 years. And then I was previously at a couple other universities, you may have heard of Miami University, and then a very small liberal arts college called Mount St. Joe's. Um, I taught for 15 years before that in public schools, mostly in special ed. And uh, that's kind of where my interest in PBIS really came from because of the work I did in special ed. And um, my research, I had two areas of research. One is with PBIS, but the other is with studying families who are raising kids with special needs and something called family resiliency. So I have two kind of both related to special ed in some way, but they're they're a little bit different. Um, I am a professor of early childhood education, though they hired me years ago as as kind of a to infuse the program with inclusive practices and ideas of equity. Um, those types of things. So found a home and I'm here to stay. So married, got three kids, adult kids, all graduated from Xavier, all doing well. And now my wife and I, we, we sit around and we hike and we drink wine and have great time. So it's wonderful. <laughs> Sounds like a fun life in, in Ohio. It is. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about your book and its um, relationship to what's going on in Vermont. Um, one of the questions I always ask at the beginning is, what are you reading? What's on your nightstand or your um, uh, bookshelf right now that you can't put down? Well, I'm so glad you asked that because uh, I read the New York Times um, book section every Sunday and they always ask that question of the author. So I feel kind of privileged to be asked that. That's wonderful. So leisure wise, what I'm just finishing up now is the, a series, a sci-fi series called The Expanse. Um, that I just love. And I'm, I'm finishing that up. I think there's eight or nine books and I'm finishing that up. Now, my more scholarly reading, I do both, um, is I'm, I just finished a book called White Out. And it's a guidebook for teaching and engaging with critical whiteness studies. And so there's a group of us reading it here on campus. And we're trying to figure out ways that we can kind of infuse our courses and our practice uh, with you know, kind of a, a, an awareness of critical white studies and, and equity issues. And, you know, so many of our students are completely unaware of the existence of things like this, this type of research. And so it's a lot of fun to, to kind of turn them on to it. Oh my, I need to talk to you off, off mic for a long time about that topic. I'm going to have to pick up white out. Thanks so much for that recommendation. And also for the recommendation of the expanse. Sounds yeah. like great pandemic reading. It is. It's been wonderful. So I guess my first question is why write a book about PBIS? Um, and you sort of alluded to that because of your work in special education, but I wanted wondered if you wanted to expand on that. Yeah, you know, I guess what I'm most troubled by 
is, um, so, so I've, I've done a lot of teaching and I've done it in and out of different departments at different universities and spent a lot of time with school psychologists and uh, behaviorist kind of centered uh, therapists and so forth. And so, so coming from a teacher perspective, I always saw behaviorism as kind of, uh, I don't know, the poor man's management system. And I saw a lot of problems with it. My early teaching career, I taught special education. I taught kids with emotional disturbance. And so it was a completely behavior, behavioristic model that we used in the classroom, and it was all rewards and punishment. And what I found was, rather than teaching new behaviors, we were very good at controlling behaviors. Um, but when we weren't there, or when they moved on to another uh, environment, they failed. Um, they hadn't internalized anything. Um, and I, I likened it to, and I think I do in the book as well, to kind of a a drug addiction, you know, you get addicted to rewards and even to punishment. And, you know, when that's withdrawn, then you have have withdrawals and you have difficulty dealing with things. Um, so that's kind of where a, a lot of my initial thoughts um, came from. And as I became a practitioner of PBIS, I was always struck with the, uh, I thought it was ironic that we called it positive behavioral intervention supports when often it wasn't very positive at all. And uh, it was just a, a method it, 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 I saw through practice. And this is an important distinction. I think there is, are good intentions with this model, but inevitably I found that the practice of this model uh, devolves into its lowest common denominators, which is, uh, you know, carrots and sticks. And uh, I found that it impacted kids of color more negatively and kids who uh, came from lower socioeconomic um, backgrounds. And I, and I noticed that they were stuck. And then the last thing being a special educator, I think what I've noticed is, you know, allegedly PBIS is supposed to uh, prevent special ed placement. So the idea being, if we intervene, intervene soon enough on these behaviors, we won't need to identify in special ed. But again, in practice, what I see PBIS using is to quicken identification and to hasten that. And, you know, that's a whole nother row you could walk down um, we often call that the prison, to, the school to prison pipeline for good reason. And so I thought with all of that kind of going on, I thought nobody has really taken a deep look at this and deconstructed it. So I thought I'm going to do that. I so appreciate that. And there's so many follow-up questions I want to ask, but I'm going to start with equity because you named that specifically. And in, in Vermont, as in many places around the country, we've been talking a lot in schools about equity and doing professional development and equity and thinking deeply about equity. And um, for me, what your book points out, what I see is that um, PBIS is a deterrent to equity. It's in, it's, um, acts it's mutually exclusive really and and part of it is that there just isn't enough space in pbis for diverse ways of being and knowing to value diverse ways of being and knowing and then that it relies on this hierarchical power structures and inevitably as you point out in the book it leads to disproportionate numbers of students of color and students low socioeconomic students from low socioeconomic backgrounds being uh, labeled, stuck with the label of special ed or being marginalized in other ways, being pushed out. Right. And so um, that feels, I guess I don't have a question there yet, but <laughs> I guess I wanna expand a little bit more on how PBIS um, might exacerbate existing inequities. But I think if you, if you really take this apart piece by piece, one of the things you learn is you know, they're, they're, you know, one of the, the first things they tell you when they're teaching you about this is, you know, we need to have behavioral expectations and they need to be communicated to the students. Well, when you have schools who are primarily white middle-class women and white middle-class men, you have a biased view of what's expected behavior. And so that's problematic right there. So a kid gets, you know, in trouble discipline-wise 
Uh, and it may not have anything to do with his level of engagement in, in class, but he's violated some norm that he didn't even know he was violating. That, that's a problem for me. And as a teacher for 15 years, you know, the noisier my room was and the more chaotic it seemed from people coming in, typically the more learning that was going on in my classroom. And so my, I think you're exactly right. You know, who's, whose behaviors are expected? You know, what, what, who's creating those? And almost never are the students involved in creating the classroom rules. Um, so I think that's fundamentally a problem. Um, you know, one of the things we're working on here as a result actually of reading the book Whiteout is we're trying to recruit more students into the education program, students of color. Um, we've had very little success in doing this. And, and I think that will help with the disproportionality, right? If you have teachers that look like the kids that they're teaching and come from that same kind of cultural window and perspective, then, then your expect, expected behaviors will be different as well. I think that they stand a better chance of, you know, learning and succeeding. So. To me, part of what I'm hearing too is it's one size fits all behaviors and that one size fits all is, is white. And so I know that in the book, you really dive deeply into the, the roots of PBIS, specifically um, applied behavioral analysis. And um, you link it, in my mind, pretty firmly to the same roots as eugenics, right? This idea that there's a normal, that there's a, a one way of being normal. And um, given our current moment, uh, these last uh, nine months, but more than that, really, I keep thinking about how PBIS is a kind of sanitized white supremacy in action. Like we well, don't call it that, but that's what I'm seeing it as. I can, I, you know, I can see that. I honestly, I haven't. See, let's put it this way: there isn't a conscious um, movement to make this something race-based. This is all um, underneath. It's very subliminal, and it, you know, it's like being. It's like the idea of being woke, right? If, if you're not aware of uh, your bias then you're going to continue to recreate it. And so it, I, my hope with this book is that people start to really look at their practice, especially behavioral expectations and say, yeah, you know, that's, that's biased and I need to adjust it in this way. And uh, so, yeah, now the, the, the purpose of this first book, there's another one coming. The purpose of this first book was to lay out the theoretical kind of foundations of what I'm looking at. But now the next book is going to be, okay, now we have the foundations, here's how to do it. And here's what it needs to look like. So I'm hoping that uh, that'll be a much more uh, uh, lucrative proposition with my book than this one was, because this one's seen as, you know, scholars are reading it and students are reading it. So uh, my hope is this next one will be more widely read and we can start making some changes with this. Well, before we jump into those changes, and I'm really looking forward to that book, thank you. I think um, books aimed at practitioners are really important in this work, right? That help them see the actions they can take. And so I'm hoping you'll come back on and talk to us about that book. Um, but before we dive into um, uh, sort of where to head from PBIS, how to reform it or change it or transform it, could, we, could, you, um, could you describe a little bit more about um, the roots of PBIS and, and some of the um, problems that those roots pose when we talk about things like equity? Right. So when you look at the research on PBIS, it's almost exclusively done by people who have been trained as school psychologists. So A, they've never been, largely have never been teachers. Um, and B, they're almost always trained in a behavioristic way of looking at modifying behavior. Typically, applied behavior analysis, you know, there's a book, the Alberto, Alberto Troutman book on applied behavior analysis is like a, a stalwart in behavior management classes and special ed programs and regular ed programs all over the country and universities. And it's all behaviorism. It's, it's, it's uh, cleverly phrased and cloaked bribes is what I call them. Um, you know, if you do this, then you get this. 
right? And the, the idea behind uh, all behaviorism is that if you structure the uh, rewards and punishment in such a, you know, kind of an engineer-like way, you will increase the behaviors that you want to see and extinguish the behaviors that you don't want to see. Well, it doesn't work and it doesn't, I'm not here to discuss whether behaviorism works or not. And that's not to me the point. The point is within the context of school, when you're teaching 30 kids in a classroom, that's just not a, a reasonable way to look at behavior. Um, you know, it automatically devolves into the lowest common denominator of very simple bribes. Um, so when you look at uh, the tier one, if you remember PBS has three tiers, that tier one is the universal um, way of looking at how to manage behaviors in the classroom. When you look at the way schools develop tier one, it's inevitably a set of bribes. It'll be if you guys follow these rules, which by the way, the students didn't have any play in creating, uh, if you do this, then you're rewarded with this. And uh, to me, that's just kind of a lazy way to teach. It's just not, as a teacher, what I'm interested in is engagement. I'm interested in how into it are the students into learning this. It has absolutely nothing to do whether they earn a trip to the, the treasure box at the end of the day. You know, you have, a, you have kids who you can tell immediately if they're turned on by what they're learning. And, you know, in my 15 years in the classroom, that's what I focused in on. So school psychologists don't have that perspective. They have this theoretical perspective. They come from the outside into a classroom and impose this structure on us and say, do this and everything will be fine. To me, it sounds um, really transactional. And later on in your book, when you start getting into solutions, I love this um, this this model that I interpreted from what you said about it's really outside in, like we're imposing on kids, it's compliance and obedience oriented versus inside out where we're changing, we're slowly changing students' ability to manage themselves uh, from the inside out in a process oriented way. Right. So when I present this to teachers in the classroom, they like the way they adheres or the way they hear it. They think it sounds really great. And but they'll say, wait a minute, um, have you ever had one of those classes where you just got this really volatile group of kids and their behaviors all over the map and you have to take control? Well, I'm very clear in this model. There are going to be days where you have to take control of the classroom. You have to externally control behavior because of safety or because of, you know, just the sheer level of chaos. But what I find in schools is, is they never come off of that, Right. They'll, they'll say, I need to control my kids, so I'm going to bribe them, and I'm going to threaten them, and I'm going to do all this stuff externally. And then when I get peace, I never change. I continue with the bribes. And so for me, it's like, okay, well, you know, as a parent, I know there are times when I have to lay the, down the law because children need that reminder every now and then. But the predominance of my energy is on helping them develop new ways of choosing behavior. Uh, we just stop. We stop with the control. Right. We never take time for the other things that usually takes longer, right? No, it's and, incredible. You, it's, it's as a teacher, it's much harder. Yeah. And, and teachers may not have the support they need, right? And if you're in a PBIS school, the whole school has to be PBIS. And so. It, it, you know, what's the law now you had IDEA the special education law mandates that they have a PBIS system, a multi-tiered level of support behavior management model. It's mandated, which is another incredible thing. I just find that so incredible that we were mandating it. Do you want to so talk more about that? Yeah, we're, well, we're mandating basically uh, a, a, a racially and class biased model of managing children's behaviors. And then on top of that, I think this is what keeps me up at night. Not only are we mandating it, but we're producing students who are addicted to rewards and punishment, who, who 
have no better reason to do something hard other than they get something for it. You mentioned engagement earlier, and um, we use in my work a lot the Schleckley model of engagement. And mm -hmm. so I'm thinking a lot about what you're talking about right now is really equated with what he calls um, ritualistic compliance, right? And it's not true engagement. Mm -mm. Are you no. familiar with that model too? Yeah, because, it, and it's exactly, you're, you're spot on with that because it's, you know, in a, I don't know if you've ever taught before, but when you're in a classroom, you know the difference between uh, internalized engagement from students and ritualistic based obedience. They're doing it, you know, and there's some kids who, who, who can do that and they can do very well with that. But I'm telling you right now, there are, there are fully a third to two thirds of kids who don't do well with that, you know? And so when we're, we're looking at the achievement gap, inevitably they're usually poor and they're usually brown skinned and 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 it impacts them more dramatically there there's a really interesting area of research um, called um, field sensitivity right so the research says that there are two broad types of learners and you can be a field sensitive learner and that learner needs interaction they need language they need to talk about what they're learning they need to share it with other people and then there's field independent and they it's all internal with them. So our schools are predominantly field independent places. They don't encourage that discussion and noise and collaboration and working with things. And so if we reward the field independent learners, we, we automatically disadvantage the field sensitive learners. The other piece to that is that field sensitive learners are predominantly underrepresented people. So there's another reason. <laughs> You're bringing up for me a couple of books that I've already talked about on this podcast. And one is Carla Shalaby's Troublemakers, mm -hmm. Lessons in Learning from Young Children in School and thinking about the way that um, some of our learners are canaries in the coal mine for when school classrooms are unjust. And then I'm also um, thinking about um, our book at the Tarrant Institute of Innovate, for Innovative Education, which is called um, Personalized Learning in the Middle Grades. And we have all these vignettes at the beginning and the learning in those vignettes, which are compilations really of really amazing classrooms we visited. The learning is really chaotic, right? Like you described earlier, like it's noisy, not everybody's doing the same thing, right? And it can feel really chaotic. And so what that brings to me is the way in which PBIS um, and, and behavioral uh, methods in the classroom um, uh, privilege the perspective of the teacher right? Like the, the power is all in the teacher and their comfort. Cause I've been in that classroom. I've been in, I've taught and I've been in the classroom where everything's chaos and I'm like, Oh my God, is everything okay? And then I realized like, I'm the only one <laughs> that isn't doing what they're supposed to do. I'm the one that's looking around and everybody else is learning. And yep. so it's that difference between being able to spot the difference between compliance and engagement. Yeah. And, and that engagement question led us to the second study that we did and we looked at tier one strategies. And one of the first ones was, you know, what, what kind of things do kids engage with? And so we went into a bunch of schools in the urban area here and looked at classrooms that were doing um, project-based learning. And so we measured, and this is really simple. It was really simple. We looked at the level of engagement um, and, and at the same time charted behavior using the PBIS model that they were forced to being used. So very often what we'd see is we'd see terrible behavior reflected on the PBIS point sheets, but deep learning <laughs> in our research on engagement. So it's obvious there are uh, project-based learning is something that many kids respond to, not all kids, but many kids do. You know, pedagogy's never talked about it as a tier one strategy. You know, it's not ever talked about, you know, because there are certain things that kids respond to and there are certain things kids don't respond to. And that's just a fact. Oh, I love that. I just want to say that again. Pedagogy is not talked about as a tier one strategy. That feels like a huge oversight. It, it is huge. You, you get, here's what you get. You get um, the only mention. So, so there's this fidelity index you're supposed to use when you're developing your tier one. 
constructed by school psychologists that says the only time they mention the word pedagogy is when they say you using ped the appropriate pedagogy to teach the children about behavioral expectations they don't mention teaching strategies they don't mention grouping they don't there's a ton of research on pedagogy and engagement um, but they don't look at any of that and it's because they're not teachers that to me that's the point they they're not teachers so they wouldn't think of that so so essentially instead of fixing systems and making systems designing systems to be more engaging for young people we're trying to fix kids yeah well and the fact that we think a kid needs fixed is a problem to begin with exactly oh so. my gosh yes okay i i i see that in a different way even than when i read your book so thank you for that um so I want to talk pedagogy a little bit. I want to talk about um, in Vermont, I, you're probably not familiar with our Act 77, which is this um, uh, legislation we have that asks us to personalize learning for uh, our students in Vermont. And so it has these three main components. And the first one is um, knowing students well. So thinking of that as personalized learning or PLPs, we often think of it as personalized learning pro portfolios or, or um, plans. And then the second um, part of the law is um, providing flexible learning pathways so that learning is more personally meaningful to learners. And then the third is um, proficiency or competency-based uh, assessment, so assessing what matters. And so there, there are three, we call them the three pillars a lot at the Terran Institute, but they're really intertwined. They're like DNA strands, right? They're spiraled together. And so I was starting to think about um, the ways in which PBIS, which is in all of our Vermont schools or most of our Vermont schools is interconnected with these three um, different parts of the law. And I wanted to process that a little bit with you. And so I wondered what you thought about PBIS and how it either promotes or prevents uh, teachers from knowing students well, knowing students and their families well. You know, theoretically, I think if you look at I think if in good faith you look at what tier one is supposed to do, like what the outcomes are, you know, they say a, a solid tier one strategy will um, be enough for 85% of the students to manage their behavior. It won't require anything else. So, you know, if you go and look at that in good faith, I think good tier one strategies would include getting to know the kids and, and creating a relationship. You know, our education program here at Xavier is based upon this really great, great quote, and it goes, there's no significant learning without significant relationships. And James Comer said that. And, you know, that should me, me that to me should be the fundamental base of all tier one strategies. So. Can I just ask you, can I um, needle you a little bit about that quote in your book? Yeah. I know what you're going to say, but right, do you? Yes. What am I going to say? Well, I think it comes from a book that is very controversial and people uh, find ironically to be very culturally biased, but I don't think it takes away from, uh, from the quote itself. Okay. Um, it is the only place I checked that you quote Ruby Payne. Uh, but but I'm not. I'm quoting James Comer. But from her ahead. book. But right. I I have to say, finding her in your bibliography was, um, and my friend Alex Chevron Vanette pointed this out. Was like, oh yeah, there's this uncritical reference to her. So I I, I was curious about that. Yeah. No. And, and you know, I met. So we all know the impact of Ruby Payne, and we all know. Uh, People have jumped on that for various reasons, but I love James Comer and I, I like what he has done in the schools in DC and I visited that. So the whole, the whole human capital piece, I find compelling. Um, you know, uh, uh, when you're looking at social justice, this is my perspective anyways, and, and realize that I'm at a Jesuit university. So we have you know, kind of a Jesuit version of, of social justice, but is the idea that um, when you limit or prevent uh, opportunities to people, including access to resources and including access to human resources, 
you know, that's a social justice issue. So that James, that Comer quote comes to me from that social justice place. Could you just repeat it? Because I, I feel like I um, threw a wet blanket over it, and it's actually a really great quote. Yeah, so uh, there is no significant learning without significant relationships. Yeah. Yeah, you're not the first one to to call me on that, by the way. So, uh, yeah, so there you are. Well, one of the, I'm going to read a little bit from your book, um, sure. because uh, this is a piece that to, when I was revisiting your book, um, that um, jumped out it to me that feels significant about this knowing students well. Um, and it, it's talking about um, uh, the, 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 hu the model that PBIS is based on. This perspective of human behavior is logarithmic in nature and denies any heuristically derived information or insights. This is a specific perspective of human behavior that denies anything but observed behavior and affects the lens in which they view children. ABA requires that the behavior be targeted, observable, and quantifiable. An outside manipulator is required to create the external controls necessary to motivate students to behave in a way that those in power deem as appropriate and desired. Often the content of the child's life is not taken into consideration when problem solving. Mm. God, who wrote that? That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it was, and I, I think that um, often when I, when I, um, I am a person who um, questions the uh, uh, impact of PBIS a lot, and when I challenge um, PBIS, people who are PBIS fans will say to me, well, it's not always implemented correctly is the problem, but if that's your, this seems like baked in. This idea of like, oh, no, we're going to we give the same reward. You get your tiger bucks or your otter paws or whatever it is. It doesn't seem to take into account um, the specific context of a kid's life. No, you're absolutely right. And, I, you know, I do think there is some something to be said about implementation. I think. Yeah, I mean, it, but it's it's not because there's anything theoretically correct about PBIS. It's it, it's about this model merging with the model of engaging teaching. They just don't, they don't mesh together. You can't have a PBIS model and really emphasize engagement in the classroom. It's it, to me, it's they're they're mutually exclusive. So you know when I when I'm talking about the heuristic nature of human behavior, I'm talking about this emphasis of identifying and targeting behaviors and looking for that one behavior or that and and not having any discussions about what's going on in this kid's head or in his life uh not knowing anything about the context that he's bringing into the classroom so many times and and i use this in my class a lot i i say you know chapter one happens when the kids are at school and they bring all that effect from chapter one into chapter two when they come into your classroom it probably would serve you to know what's happening in chapter one and and that's what i'm talking about that's not valued at all in the development of interventions typically so that that makes me think of a couple of things and one is um it's not just that it interferes with knowing students well it interferes with doing something, applying that knowledge of how we know individual students well to their educational plan or to our teaching or to what they need in an educational setting, right? So not only does it get in the way, but even if you know your students well, I mean, we in Vermont, a lot of um, teachers, myself included, have lived in small towns where we like go to the grocery store with the kids we serve. We know their families. We taught their siblings. It's not, these are not big schools. And so we might know students well, but PBIS might get in the way of us actually applying what we know about students for their best interest. Yeah, because you're, you're going to be seen as a giver and a taker. And that doesn't, develop uh, relationships very well at all if you're seen as the manipulator then they're going to resent you in the end so yeah. it's transactional yep 
Um, the second component of our Act 77 in Vermont schools is this idea of personally meaningful learning opportunities for young people, this idea of flexible pathways, that school doesn't need to look the same for all students. And this really gets at pedagogy. When we think about this at the Tarrant Institute, we're thinking about project-based learning, service learning. Um, we're thinking about education for sustainability. Um, building in lots of voice and choice for students. And really, um, I think this is also where uh, social justice education fits in, right? Kids yep. having a real role in the world. And so I'm wondering if you see any um, contradictions between PBIS and um, flexible pathways. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, inherent in the DNA of PBIS is uh, uh, imposed impose structures and imposed norms um, so yeah the kids don't have much say in any of the the interventions that are developed on tier well, tier one tier two or tier three so absolutely um, I, I I think what I have seen I've spent a lot of time in schools is I do see teachers who manage to create meaningful relationships and flexible pathways for kids in spite of having to also do interventions, uh, PBIS interventions as well. So a lot of times when I'm talking about this book, people think I'm, I'm just like negative on any, everything. Now, there, there are a lot of teachers doing really good work in spite of this, but it's always in spite of PBIS. Now with flexible pathways, to me, you know, the whole idea of, um, you know, it used to be called differentiated instruction. And now the big term is universal design for learning. And all these ideas are, are basically, they come back to what you're talking about. The idea of finding what flips the switch for the kid and engages him. And I don't think we need a fancy name for that. It's just engagement. It's about, you know, this 10 kids over here in your classroom are, are switched on by this. And this 10 is switched on by the there's, there's very uh, uh, useful strategies that we can teach people in order to give them flexible pathways to learning, but it's always in spite of PBIS. So that's interesting to me because I think of a, a universal design for learning as a way of removing obstacles to learning, like being really cognizant of what the obstacles are and removing them. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about um, uh, the ways in which we tend to plan for the middle and PBIS seems to be about creating the middle, getting everybody into this middle zone, right? And I've been thinking a lot about how UDL asks us to plan for the margins, right? To plan for the kids. And I do think as teachers and many of us, myself included, we're good at school. I was a good little school child. I was your, what did you say earlier? You talked about the research of- um, Field independent. Field independent. I was your field independent learner, right? And so many of us, it's really easy for us to plan for other field independent learners or to plan for that middle, those well-behaved children or those kids who were um, uh, without learning disabilities or, or uh, kids who look like us, act like us, are like us. And, um, and so what would it look like to instead plan for the margins? And so right. And, and so that not just pedagogically, not just instructionally, but also in our classroom environments and in our, um, in our, the structures and the culture that we build in the classroom. Yeah. Now my career started in outdoor education. So I, I would take kids who were from urban Cleveland, uh, behavior problems, and we would take them out into the woods and they'd camp and they'd hike. And so I hear the kids that who were horrible in the classroom and their behavior was really dangerous many times, but we'd take them out into this new environment and they'd have, I liked your, the way you phrased this choice and what was the choice and something else? Voice. Choice and voice. They had choice and voice because that's one of the, the uh, fundamental things about outdoor ed is choice and voice. And then there were no behavior problems. And so I'm thinking, why don't we, you know, why don't we take that and, and apply that into school? We, we, we try to fit all these kids into this square peg, the square hole of public education, um, and they don't all fit. So why don't we change the hole that we're trying to stick them into? So uh, I'm all for that. Um, what I'm finding, though, is politically and, and um, culturally, 
it's a really tough nut to crack. It's it's really hard to get people to listen to that, especially now in these times. Um, Montessori, though, I got to tell you, Montessori has done a really nice job with this. Um, and they have a very loyal, almost militant following um, with families who, who have their kids in Montessori schools. So I know it can be done. You're also reminding me of something we talk about at, um, at the Terran Institute, which is that project-based learning, PBL, shouldn't be dessert, right? And so often we're so focused on skill building and like once we get all the skills in place, then we'll do the fun stuff. And, and I think that what flexible pathways and what really good pedagogy tells us is if kids are engaged enough doing um, rich, meaningful, relevant learning, they'll learn the skills. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, from my, my experience in the classroom, what I, I found that to be true and I found it, um, but it's, I also found it to be very labor intensive for a teacher to teach in that way. Again, it's much easier to do it teaching to the middle than it is to teach to the margins. Um, you, it takes a lot more planning and a lot more energy. So the, the third part of Act 77 is proficiency-based assessment. Um, and what we at Terrence think about is assessing what matters. And um, so part who did, of- Who determines what matters? Well, yeah, thank you. Do you want to say more about that? No, I want to hear what you have to say about it. <laughs> well, it, yeah. So in Vermont, um, we are big fans of local control. And so the AOE, our um, agency of education, put out some guidelines, but that each school or each district determines what matters for proficiency-based graduation requirements. And, um, and I think, you know, I'm a big fan, actually, of proficiency-based assessment as a, a lever for equity, because I think it's um, it more clearly ideally it, in a, in a well-planned um, proficiency-based system, it clearly outlines uh, what um, students, what the goals are for students to learn. Ideally, there's some flexibility in there too. There are certain things that every kid needs and then there are, ki- there are places where kids can explore and develop their own um, expertise. Um, and uh, you know, those indicators are really clear and kids develop their, or demonstrate that they've met um, the indicator through a body of evidence, right? And so it takes some of that like, well, in my gut, this kid gets a B, you know, <laughs> like it takes some of that guesswork out and the bias that goes with that. Um, it also, in our setting, schools have to develop a set of transferable skills, these skills that cross traditional disciplines are siloed disciplines. So instead of just um, science and math and language arts and history, the kids also need to demonstrate um, their growth in collaboration and communication and collaborative, uh, I'm sorry, creative problem solving and self-direction. And that's a place for me where the rubber meets the road with PBIS. In many of the schools I work with, um, they have PBIS systems, say K to eight. And um, I'm talking to middle school teachers in grades five, six, seven, eight, and the teachers are like, these kids can't. They just can't do self-directed learning. And so A, that's problematic for me because it's a real um, uh, deficit viewpoint. And B, to me, it's like no wonder they've been they've been given tokens and treats and rewards um, for compliance all along. Why would they be self-directed learners by the time they get to you in a system that um, uh, rewards compliance? Yeah, that's very well put. So do you, I guess my question is like, that's my perspective and your book seems to echo that a lot or helped inform that perspective. But I'm wondering in what other ways might PBIS sort of throw a monkey wrench at proficiency-based instructional models? Right, so I am being an early childhood educator, authentic assessment is really important to me, right? So the idea that the way you're assessing the kid's proficiency has to match with how they learn and what they learn, right? So my problem with a lot of what we call proficiency-based assessment now, at least in Ohio, is that it almost never matches what they're experiencing in the classroom or their their learning style. And so uh, it doesn't give you an accurate read, right? So 
I, my view on this is that you establish what you're measuring, all right? And you use it in a way, hold on a second, got the phone ringing. Um, you establish what you're measuring and then you have multiple data points, multiple and diverse ways of measuring those things. Um, and I think it gives you, and then also measure it over time as opposed to just one moment of, of assessment. And so, you know, again, though, that takes time and that takes energy. Um, it's much easier to give a standardized test than it is to, to do authentic assessment. So I do think PBIS caters to kind of a more standardized way of measuring things, right? So if you look at the way interventions are measured, it's largely quantitative. Um, it will measure, you know, and in the book I go into this, if you look at the research on PBIS, they always measure it in terms of what we call ODRs, office discipline referrals. Um, oh, 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 I am familiar with ODRs. I am the mother of a son. I know, <laughs> I know all about ODRs. Right. So, you know, that it's what that measures is how often you've been kicked out of class, right? Um, it does not measure engagement. It does not measure any growth over time. It just measures that one thing. And so if that's what you're using to measure, I don't think that's an accurate assessment of how well they're learning to uh, self-discipline and self-manage. Um, so in, in this next book that we're coming out with, we're looking at that more deeply and saying, okay, let's have measures of engagement. Let's have measures of, let's have qualitative measures, right? So descriptive measures that tells us the little baby steps they're taking uh, before they get kicked out of class, right? So there could be, once they get kicked out of class, all too often we say, well, there's nothing good happening here. And that's not accurate. So, uh, and then the last thing I'll say about that is, is when you have white middle-class women largely teaching uh, poor brown skin, predominantly males, um, there's a mismatch on what expected behavior is and what can keep you in class. Obedience keeps you in class in terms of the white middle-class viewpoint, um, but engagement should be the measure. Does that make sense to you? Oh, it totally makes sense. And I also think like, don't we want to to graduate into the world engaged citizens and not obedient citizens? Well, no. In a capitalistic society, we want obedience. And and to me, that's the larger book I have out in my future is is linking these ideas to capitalism. And I think that there's a lot to be said about that connection. Hmm. How are structures of schools? Uh, evolve what our expectations are to what we teach and how we teach it and how we assess it. It's all about creating obedient citizens um, uh, and, and especially obedient underrepresented citizens. We don't want them to be assertive. No, we want them to be very well behaved and know their place. Um, I think Again, another, uh, you know, it may not be eugenics, but it is blatantly raci racist, uh, uh, a racist idea. So, but that's down the road. I got to, I got to develop some other things before I go into that. This is a really highly theoretical. That's what I'll write after I'm emeritus. <laughs> well, I'm troubled by that because I do want to graduate engaged citizens. And I know many of my Vermont, um, many Vermont educators do. We want students engaged in um, the democratic process. We want students engaged in their social institutions, right? And um, I, I want to step back though a little bit and say, I totally heard what you said about, um, and I and agree and should have been more clear that proficiency-based assessment actually for me only works if instruction changes. Changes. If we're clear about what we want to teach, then we, we teach it in a way that kids can learn it. And they get lots and lots of formative feedback. And so while you were talking, it occurred to me that um, these rewards, these tiger bucks and beaver paws or whatever they are that kids get as a part of PBIS are their own kind of feedback. And it's not feedback that asks for growth or change, right? And so we're teaching kids that feedback is just something that, you know, you get. And so I know in schools, having taught uh, K to 12, that um, 
one of our struggles is teaching kids how to engage feedback for growth, how to give feedback so kids can grow and learn, and then how to help kids learn to take feedback and use it to grow and learn. And so in a way, these tokens, this tokenized system is counterproductive to the kind of ways we want kids to receive feedback. Absolutely. Can I recommend a book to you? Yes, please. Always. Okay. So we use this in our uh, assessment and observation class. It's called Embedded Formative Assessment by a guy named Dylan William. He's, he's a Brit, but it's exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's a, a authentic formative assessment. So it really emphasizes how to give feedback, how to, um, how to guide learning and guide behavior. Uh, and I actually got to meet this guy in London when I was there and he is just fabulous. And he's got videos out in the whole, whole nine yards, but he's just, this is a really good book for practitioners. You should take a look at it. Thanks so much for that suggestion. Yep. Um, I'm going to drop your name when I ask him to be on the podcast. There you go. <laughs> I don't know if they'll remember me. This is the, uh, the American that I met, he, he say the, the weird American who is there with a bunch of kids from the States. Maybe you remember that. I don't know. So the other thing that Vermont schools, besides um, equity and Act 77, personalized learning, the other thing that I'm hearing about all the time, all over Vermont schools, everybody's doing PD and is trauma-informed no. and trauma-informed instruction, right? And so we've got all these schools that are um, talking about equity, talking about personalized learning, talking about trauma, and then spending a week every summer going to the best institute to learn about PBIS. And for me, there's like a contradiction that we're hitting, there's, it's contradictory. And so Alex Chevron Vanette, um, an educational leader in Vermont, a really fabulous person, does a lot of PD work around trauma-informed. And I recently um, went to a webinar, a Zoom, went on Zoom to a webinar with her where she talked about, um, that these two approaches are mutually exclusive. Um, yeah. That's a really important point. I, that, I haven't done a lot of thinking about that, but that's absolutely true. Yeah, because when and when you also factor in the is it Act seventy seven or yeah, so when you you know the idea of knowing children, right? Uh, there, they makes it mutually exclusive. Absolutely, you know because. Honestly, a lot of teachers don't want to know about the trauma they're experiencing. They're like, no, I teach reading. I don't want to know about trauma. Can <laughs> you imagine? <laughs> well, and I, I don't want to put words in Alex's mouth, but from learning from her, from reading her, um, I think what she would say is we don't need necessarily to know uh, kids-specific trauma histories. What we need to know is the way that trauma impacts kids' behaviors and their ways of showing up in the class. And yes. so she uses a term a lot that I saw in your last chapter of your book where you're starting to outline some solutions or ways to make a uh, PBIS more socially just, which is um, uh, unconditional positive regard. Mm -hmm. And so it, it seems to me that PBIS often runs counter to that notion of how do we hold kids in an appreciative way with unconditional positive regard, even when they're struggling, even yeah. when like their, their behaviors are completely inappropriate, but there may be logical reasons, logical um uh, things happening outside of the, our classroom that are feeding into that, that we need to understand. Right. And PBIS often doesn't, uh, accommodate that type of thinking. It's like either you're behaving this way or you're be behaving that way. And I really don't care about the reasons why we just need to stop it. That's just, that's fundamentally part of behaviorism, by the way. I mean, if you go back to the the root of, you know, Skinner and, and Watson, they're like, no, there is no inner life that matters. The only thing that matters because we're a science after all is what we observe. And that, that DNA is still visible within PBIS practice. That just breaks my heart. I have to tell you that I loved that I could see where you, um, uh, cited Parker Palmer. I'm a big fan of Parker mm -hmm. Palmer's and um, his book, Courage to Teach, and his um, 
reflective practice. And, and so this idea that um, we operate under a system that denies an inner life to folks, and then the contrast of Parker Palmer, who's all about authenticity and showing up and being reflective about your inner life, it's like, ah, there's a lot of dissonance there for me. Lots of dissonance, yes. Um, okay, so... I want to get practical here. I know I you're going to write a book about this, and I can't wait to have you on to talk about it and to read it. Um, but many of our schools, all of our schools are deeply invested in PI, PBIS. So um, I, I guess I'm asking, what are some tangible steps they can take if they're not able just to ditch it? Well, I think in, in the book, I, I start to develop this a little bit. So my observation is when people are intervening on student behavior, they often start with the student and they start with this deficit model, you know, what's defective and how do we fix this about the kid? And I think they've got that backwards. I, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Yuri Bronfenbrenner and the whole ecological way of looking at development. And I think you start when you're, when you're looking to intervene, you start on the outside and work towards the child. The child should be the last place you end up. You should be looking at these uh, subsequent ecosystems to see what's going on there. Because in my mind, as, as a consultant who does a lot of behavioral consultants for schools, you, you, there's all, it's almost always something else besides the kid that is the cause of these behaviors. Very often, it's the teacher and what's going on in the class. And they don't really like to hear that, but that's been my finding. So if we start from the outside and start looking at where this kid is coming from, you know, what's happening in his chapter one, um, what's happening at home, um, you know, what do other teachers have to say about him? What do other people have to say about him? And then slowly only go towards the child as far as you have to, to come up with some solutions. I think that's the first thing. So I call that the, uh, the uh, you know, instead of, you know, when you're intervening upon them, you go outside in, right? But when you're talking about behavior change, it's an inside out. Again, I hear fix the system, not the child. It's not the I child. Think, the child doesn't need to be fixed. The system needs to be fixed. Well, and, you know, I will say this. There are kids who are damaged. Uh, I don't know that fixing is the right word we should use, but who need a different kind and a different level of support. But I would say two to 3% is all we're looking at. Kids who are so damaged that, uh, you know, they require some control, actually. I think there are those kids there, but, but regardless, you still, there's still impact of all these ecosystems and you start there. So I think that's the first place I'd start. And the second place is this idea of responsiveness, right? The idea that a classroom and a school has to be responsive to kids. It has to be, the kids have to have power within that ecosystem. They have to have the ability to choose, the, the ability to control. Um, they should be the ones helping you create uh, the rules in the classroom and the culture in the classroom. And it should be based upon what they want out of their school year, right? So, you know, in your area of the country, there's a great place called the Northeast Foundation, and they do the responsive classroom. And I, I don't like everything about what they talk about, but I really like the idea of developing rules and culture in the classroom with the children, as opposed to doing it for them. So... Chip a would. lot of our schools have responsive classroom, and it, it seems interesting that they're holding both PBIS and responsive classroom. Doesn't uh, it? <laughs> but I also, I love what I consider in your, in the last chapter of your book, which I highly recommend people interested in transforming PBIS read. Um, I, there are a couple things that seem to me like just like these guiding principles or things we should all believe. And we should believe them not just, you know, in the back of our heads, but actively believe them and they should show up in our practice. And they are this. Uh, you say each child is to be respected. I, I would rephrase that as children deserve to be respected. Every single child deserves respect. Um, the second is all children can learn. Absolutely. Like that should be a fundamental belief that we act on every day. Um, the first six years of a child's life is a sensitive period for learning. And then I love number four, children naturally enjoy learning and working hard if allowed to direct their learning. 
Like children love to learn. And and when people say these kids don't want to learn, I'm like, what have we done to them then? Like that seems like it's our problem because kids are born. Anybody who's been around young children know they love to learn and experiment. And, um, and so to me, these are like fundamental principles that we should, that should show up everywhere in a school culture, these beliefs. Yeah. Now, do you, I don't know if you're familiar, there's a researcher, her name is Constance Camille and Constance Camille did, she's a Piagetian, you know, based and she, she looks at child development that way. But one of the things that I love about her work is this idea of why do kids hate math? Why, when they're older, do they say, oh, I just want to avoid math and I don't like it. And she traces it back to how math is taught. And so, and one of my ideas about intellectual autonomy comes from her, this idea that our pedagogy has to um, want to develop kids who engage, but kids who are intellectually autonomous, who can talk about their thinking, they can defend their thinking, they can defend, you know, if they're working on a math problem, they can defend their answer and explain it. And that when you teach math from that perspective, it's, uh, it's, it's freeing. It's it creates autonomy and it's fun to learn. And to me, that really speaks to this whole idea of, uh, you know, why people hate school. You know, the, the research, it's really interesting. The research shows that by third grade, kids define themselves as either liking school or hating school, as either being good at math or bad at math, good at art or bad at art. By third grade, you're what, nine years old? I, I had to overcome the trauma of fourth grade being kicked out of chorus. And I didn't sing out loud again until I had an infant in my life for years. <laughs> and it happened in the fourth grade. You probably still don't want to hear me sing, but. You well, know. you got a cool microphone to sing into. That's <laughs> well, so you're reminding me of a couple of things and like really coalescing for me a couple of ideas. And one is um, I'm going to use some language from Parker Palmer, which is this idea that learning and math are birthright gifts and and that we are we are taking those from children when we don't provide environments where they feel like mathematicians and learners, because we are born as humans to do math, every single one of us. And I, you mentioned Constance Camille, but I think of Rochelle Gutierrez and her work around rehumanizing mathematics. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, and I so wish I could go back in time and learn math that way, because... I don't like math at this point, you know, I avoid doing math and I'm here. I am at this university where there's all the, all these eggheads around me and, and I got to admit sometimes, yeah, I don't like, I don't like math too much. <laughs> so. No quantitative research for you, huh? Well, I can do it. I don't like it though. <laughs> Um, are there any other, I, there's a lot more in this chapter about how to transform PBIS or are there any other, um, uh, big points you want to make before I ask you one last self Yeah. You know, preparing the environment, I think is, is, is underrated. And I think that, uh, there's a lot more to preparing the environment than just how you set your room up, right? It's, it's this planning, uh, you know, one of the things I do, one of the, the, activities I take my students through is this idea of the work you do before the kids even come in the classroom is, is important and it's proactive and it, it's a tier one strategy, you know, thinking through your routines, thinking through um, the age group and the developmentally appropriate practice that you need to, to use in things like restroom breaks and lining up and, you know, cafeteria, those things you have to think through we call them the three R's rules, rituals, and routines. You know, you, you, you think about those things before they happen. Um, and those are tier one. And I think bottom line, if you have to be forced into a PBIS model, if you are, then let's spend a whole lot of time developing this tier one. Let's, let's really hit 85% of the kids who require nothing else than we think through deeply these things that will proactively prevent uh, disengagement and misbehavior. So that's, that's kind of the, the final word I would, I would say. And, and, you know, then I also talk about preparing the curriculum, right? So I think there's a lot to be said pedagogically. Uh, there's a lot wrong with what we do pedagogically, particularly in fourth through 12th grade. I think, I think the preschool to third grade, uh, 
thankfully, we do a fairly good job across the country. But beginning in fourth grade, because we switched to a departmental model and we become much more content oriented, I think we have decreasing uh, productivity uh, and, and decreasing developmentally appropriate practice as we get as the kids get older. So I think there's a lot of pre preparation that could be done with pedagogy too. One of the things I often think about is how our, as educators, we can have our imaginations limited by what school was for us. Like it's one of those professions, right? Where you enter into a profession that you experienced as a young person. You don't usually do that if you become a police officer or a lawyer, right? Or even a doctor. You don't spend every day at the doctor's office, like internalizing what being at, in a doctor's office looks like. But school, we internalize all these things about these things about what school should look like from our own experience in school. And then we come into school and we often reproduce that even if it wasn't good for us. Yep. and our classmates. And so I guess one of the things I'm thinking about is the way in which your book asks us to imagine a, classrooms and schools in a different way, to look at them in a different way, to, to, to like actively um, uh, hope for something different than what we experienced. Yeah, that's very well put. And, and I, I believe it can happen. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm not a young man anymore, but it's what keeps me coming to work every day because I know I'm having, you know, 100 students come through my program every year and I'm sending them out with these vibes. And I think that'll make a change. So mm. that's a really hopeful. That's a really hopeful way to end. Yep. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much for taking. I could hear your email dinging. I know you're a busy person. I want to <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about um, PBIS and to do so in a way that isn't fatalistic, to do so in a way that's hopeful and, and leads us forward. Well, and thank you. I, you know what? Everybody has an ego and it's so nice to be recognized for having written something and, and that people like. So thank you. Well, I like your book a lot. It mattered a lot to me and I can't wait to read your next one. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm Jeannie Phillips and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Thomas Nestrick for appearing on the show and talking with me about controlling our children hegemony and deconstructing the positive behavioral intervention support model. If you're looking for a copy of Controlling Our Children, Hegemony and Deconstructing the Positive Behavioral Intervention Support Model, check your local library. Special thanks to our tireless producer and audio engineer, Audrey Holman. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BTEDReads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.